KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. Welcome back to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. If you're a geek like I am, the news that Comic-Con was going to open a museum was something to be excited about. The pop culture convention run by geeks for geeks has grown so popular that tickets sell out in hours and many people can no longer attend. Perhaps to address this increased popularity, Comic-Con has decided to open a museum in the old Hall of Champions building in Balboa Park in San Diego. The nonprofit organization has been a bit tight-lipped about when it will open and exactly what it will be. But at WonderCon this past weekend, the person who'll be in charge of the museum, Adam Smith, was available to finally talk about what this museum might be and whether museum is even the right word for it. He currently signs off on his emails as executive director of the Comic-Con Center for Popular Culture. For this podcast, I speak with Smith about what a center for pop culture could be and about what he geeks out over. I'll also include a little treat from WonderCon, which is Comic-Con's sister convention. It's a cold reading of a script by voice actors at the Cartoon Voice panel. Plus, I'll have a little Easter egg for you at the end. After all, it is Easter this Sunday. Here's a little tease. Oh, yes, I think so. There's my purr. But first, here's my interview with Adam Smith. We are here at WonderCon 2018, and I am speaking with Adam Smith, who is the executive director of what we're not sure exactly what it's going to be called. It's been referred to as a Comic-Con museum, Comic-Con center, but we'll get to that later. But first of all, I just wanted to ask you, this sounds like a potential dream job. So what is it about you that you think makes you a good person to take on this challenge? Well, it's certainly my dream job. and. I, I've come at this really with a very strong background in museums. Um, when I was a little boy, all I ever really wanted to do was to work with history. I have loved old things. Uh, and so it was either be an archeologist or a history teacher or a museum person. And I ended up choosing the museum track. And uh, ever since I was 16 years old, I've worked in a museum. And I, I ended up going to uh, museum school in Scotland. Uh, your listeners are probably realizing I wasn't born in America. <laughs> so basically the last 25 years of my life, I've spent in, in various different kinds of museums. I've done a golf museum, a coal mining museum, a Victorian farming, done a lot of aviation museums. And I arrived with Comic-Con five months ago to uh, try and help help pull this amazing project together in Balboa Park and I was saying to someone the other day I feel like everything that I've done over the last 25 years it's, it, it feels like it's been preparing me for this moment it, it I, I do feel very humbled and very lucky to be in this job because it, it is really exciting we're, we're we have a very rare opportunity to imagine something 
from the ground up. There's no there's no baggage here of a of a previous museum or anything like that. And and it's such an exciting organization and and such an exciting environment to be part of. You know, how how can it not be a dream job? It does bring some challenges too because there is a, a lot of my life I've spent sort of managing expectations. So you try and keep everyone's expectations down and then you know you deliver something really awesome that, that exceeds everyone's expectations. And I think with Comic Con it's like it's not possible to do that because everyone already believes it's going to be really awesome so to some degree I've just got to accept that challenge and we will make it amazing I think I bring a professional background that that is needed in a project like this we that a museum is it is almost a medium unto itself you know we ha- in in the world of comic con we have comics and tv and film and I would sort of say a a place to visit is a distinct thing that has its own dynamics. And sometimes, actually, I, I talk to people and they, they think of museums like a book. You know, it, it, there's a, the, you, st- you start on page one and you go through it sequentially. And, and, you know, one of the things you learn working in museums is that you can imagine it like that, but, you, but people don't always walk from point A to point B, B the way you want them to. So you, you have a different design challenge and and things like that. So I think I bring a professional background, but I, this also intercepts my sort of personal passion. And in many ways, I think my passion for Comic-Con, before I sort of talk about what I'm geeky about, my passion for Comic-Con, it almost starts with people. I've always found myself drawn to museums and the kinds of institutions that that are what I would call social history kind of museums, um, that are about people. And I take a lot of my energy and there's a lot of my interest is in the history of human society and human people. And I think there's something really interesting going on in, in the Comic-Con movement, that the growth of fandom in America is something that really fascinates me socially. And, and I feel very drawn to, to the organization and the spirit of Comic-Con, if that makes sense. And it's also, I've, I've always found myself a kind of a bottom-up kind of person rather as opposed to top-down, in the sense that a lot of museums are in the model of we hire expert curators that develop collections and decide what's important and then present that to the public. Walking around WonderCon here or Comic-Con in San Diego later in the year, it, it, it is a totally fan-driven experience. It's not a curator-driven experience, and we want that we want that vibe to to run through what we're doing in Balboa Park, and that's a way of thinking about museums that I've I've, I've been embracing for for the last 25 years. But truthfully, I've I've sort of sometimes find myself almost fighting with my own profession because they they see it a different way. But one of the reasons this is an awesome job for me is that I I, I think that sort of where I've always been coming from fits what comic where Comic Con has always been coming from. And then in terms of what am I, you know, what am I geeky about? Heck, I, 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 we actually, we did a survey recently and I got, I got 6,000 replies um, from Comic-Con fat attendees and fans. And it, 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 one of the things we wanted to explore was, you know, what are you interested in, in comics or film or tabletop gaming or whatever. An interesting thing for me was that exactly 25% of the audience said what I'm interested in is not one thing it's everything that the Comic-Con is a big tent thing for me and I just love it all and I think I'm definitely I would check that box I, I, I sort of love all of it but I 
my, my personal interest is slightly esoteric. I am a huge geek of, of pinball machines. <laughs> and it's just something I've always been fascinated in. Uh, as, as you and I met this morning, I was chatting with someone because we were both at Texas Pinball Festival last weekend, just sort of geeking out over the new announcements of the new machines and the famous pinball machine creators that we met and things like that. And so, you know, from, from a background like that, I, I think I understand the people, you know, there's obviously so many passions inside of Comic-Con. Um, in some of the categories of Comic-Con, I think I'm an ordinary person. I, 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 I watch movies, I read comic books, I, you know, play video games and things like that. Um, but I, I'm probably, I wouldn't consider myself a geek in any of those areas. But to be truthful, part of my job is not to be the expert in everything um, because I'm surrounded by experts. Part of my job is to corral them and make sure that the voices and passions of individual interests are represented in what we do. I think I, I, think I, I have to sort of get it. I've got to understand where fans are coming from, you know? So uh, that's a very, very long-winded answer to your short question, but, but you know... <laughs> It's uh, as you said. It's a it's a it's a really fantastic job to be in, and I feel very lucky. Well, you are wearing a Doctor Who shirt, though. I am. Um, well, be, one of the interesting things about being with Comic Con for the last five months, it has made me think more deeply about you know what I'm interested in and what I've what I've the shows that I've watched and the thing and the comic books that I've read and things like that. And it may it does make you realize that. Um, that where you were born and raised has a big influence on your popular culture, that you're sort of surrounded by a set of references and, 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 a, and a media that, that sort of guides you in a certain direction. So like British comic books, for example, heavily influenced by uh, sports. Most, most of the comic books that I read, you know, from from childhood through my teens were not superheroes at all. That 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 genre is very American. Um, but in Britain it was like Roy of the Rovers, this soccer player, you know, and, and the, we had like cricket heroes and, and we even had a comic about going fishing, you know, and, and things like that. So Doctor Who is, if I can describe my t-shirt, it has the logo from the classic era of Doctor Who. I, I think I, I know a lot about it from the 70s and the 80s. Um, I kind of still watch it now, but I think everyone has their own favorite doctor. Mine is the fourth doctor, Tom Baker. I once got a signed photograph of him when I was a little boy, and you know, he's, he's, still, he's still my favorite. Now, I mentioned that initially this was gonna be called the Comic-Con Museum, and you said that you're actually going through kind of a naming process right now, so where are you at with that? Just to zoom out a little bit from that, we're actually going through the whole process of just imagining and designing what is this going to be. The one known that we have about the project is where it will be. Um, we've got um, a building in Balboa Park, which used to be the Hall of Champions. So it's down in the Palisades area of the park near the Air and Space Museum. 68,000 square foot building. It's actually a, a great building, but that's we, we've got a lot of work to do to decide you know how we're going to lay it out and what kind of exhibits events programs we want to have inside it and part of that is deciding even what to call it and i think it'll probably be another month or so before we've decided an, an official name and i think that without going too deep into it it that it 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 probably some of the discussion revolves around the word museum because on the one hand if we call it comic-con museum 
there's some advantages of that because people kind of understand a museum to be a place that, that that's open to the public and they can come and visit and bring the kids and bring a school class and, and, and all those kind of things. Uh, so there are advantages to it. The disadvantages are that in some people's mind it's sort of old and dusty and, and it's all about displaying artifacts and things like that. And I think we definitely want Comic-Con to... I think there will be some history in there. And we will, we, we, for example, we want to tell the story of Comic-Con in San Diego. But the driving force behind the thing is not really about historical displays about Comic-Con or, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's as much about the here and now and the future as it is about the past. So I think we're mulling over whether to call it Comic-Con Museum or what alternatives might be out there and we'll just we'll just go through that process. So what is the status of the building now? Is it pretty much like a gutted facility and then you, you're going to be able to build from kind of ground zero inside the building? It's a completely empty building. If people ever went in it when it was Hall of Champions, just imagine Hall of Champions with all the exhibits removed. That's that's what it is right now. It's a three three levels. There's a full basement, there's a full first floor, and then sort of a mezzanine level that's got about two thirds of a of a, of a of a second floor. I think the bones of the building are very good. It was it was built in 1935 as a permanent structure. It was one of the few buildings in Balboa Park that was originally designed to be permanent. And then about 17 years ago, Hall of, when Hall of Champions was developed, um, they spent a lot of money excavating the basement and you know putting good. There are good bones of in terms of electrical and plumbing and things like that. So I don't have to worry a lot about the structure, but the question of what the visitor experience will be is front and center right now. We're probably halfway through the process of, of thinking that through. I think there will be a mix of, certainly a mix of permanent and temporary exhibits. Um, the, you know, the, a permanent exhibit is something that, you know, will be there all the time and, and will tell whatever themes and stories we want to tell. But I, I, I feel like traveling exhibits and changing exhibits are going to be a huge part of this facility partly because it as in all museums that helps keep you fresh and gives people a reason to come back but also because one of the challenges i've got right now is, is an overwhelming amount of content i could fill that building 10 times over so we need a rotation to allow us to cycle through the different interests and themes and ideas that are inside of comic-con Conceptually, as we as we imagine the future of the museum, I'm very interested in. I, I actually had breakfast with someone this morning, and I said it's almost like we're, dis we're we're designing three museums in one building. And I said, Museum One is the what I call the daytime museum, which is would be relatively familiar to anyone. It's it's open to the public, and it, it's. Um, uh, you know, full of tourists and visitors and school children and a regular kind of attendance at, at, at that kind of facility. And they usually stay open from 9 or 10 in the morning to 5 or 6 in, in the afternoon or evening. Museum number two, we feel that, that our marketplace and our location and our subject matter is making us very strongly think, think about a museum or a place that is open quite long into the evening. So Museum 2 is, is a more programmed facility where you might, might come and see film screenings or do trivia night in the cafe or attend a cosplay workshop in one of the classrooms, you know, do tabletop gaming or a more sort of 
program driven evening entertainment kind of a venue and I think as we work on the project we're, we're thinking there's a strong case to to basically stay open all the way from the morning to quite quite late in the evening and then museum three is is basically a virtual museum part of how we conceptualize what we're doing with this project is not just this physical place that someone can visit but as a hub for an organization that has a national slash international scope of reach. So some of the programming we will do in the museum will very deliberately be live streamed so that people can, you know, there might be two or three hundred people in our building attending a program, but there could be two or three thousand watching online and, you know, asking questions online and things like that. So I think the whole sort of concept of, a, of, of how we can project ourselves digitally is, is something that, that we're trying to build into the design of the thing. So for example, one of the things that I'm pretty sold on is that I think we need to have a, a really good theater in this space. I know many of your listeners are interested in film and, and I think a, a, a state of the art theater where we can do screenings, but also have the kind of panels that, that people are familiar with from Comic-Con, you know, I, I think is going to be um, something that I, I can't imagine we won't do that. Um, you know, some, some of the other things, uh, there's lots of exhibit ideas are still up, for, still up for grabs. But I think we want it to be, we want it to be interactive. Um, we want it to be a place that people will be able to create something. Um, we, one of the philosophies we're bringing to the project is that everyone is a creator and even if they don't know it we want to we want to have people thinking about about what they can create with their own with their own hands and mind i think there will be i think there will be we talked a little bit about fans and the comic-con audience is very 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 passionate and is very very deep in its knowledge and its passions but we've got to design this place so that it's also a fantastic place to visit for someone that isn't a fan. I think it, I think one of the reasons we're doing this at all is is to have a gateway into our subject matter so that people can have a nice easy entry and then get more and more engaged and interested in, in, in the things that we represent. So one of the most interesting design challenges we've got is how do you create something that works both for a hardcore fan and also for someone walking with basically no knowledge of the subject matter. That is challenging but it's, it's doable and if, if actually if I professionally have ever been have been able to do anything it's kind of that. I, I, I just came off a couple of aviation museums where I've got this these hardcore fans of aeroplanes that really really love it and they know everything about every aspect of every aeroplane but, but I used to measure my visitation they represented 11% of my audience. And I had to make them very happy because if I didn't, I would hear about it. <laughs> but I also had to serve the 89% of people that walked in the door that didn't, that basically knew very little about aeroplanes and they kind of wandered in, you know, because they wanted something to do on a rainy Sunday afternoon or, or whatever. If, I, I think if I've ever been, if I've been successful professionally, it's actually in solving that problem. Now having an empty building is a plus in the sense that you can kind of turn it into whatever you want. The downside is I'm sure that costs a lot of money. So what point are you at in terms of how you plan to finance it and the fundraising and, and when something might actually be ready for the public to see? Well right now, we, as, 
as is probably quite clear by now, we're, we're, we're in the design process of, of thinking about what we want it to be. Simultaneously, we are thinking about, okay, what will the budget for this be and how much uh, money have we got? How much money do we need to raise? And I think all of those things will come together in three or four months from now into a, into a firm plan. Comic-Con as an organization is making a very substantial investment in this project from its own resources, but that won't be enough to get us to the kind of facility that I think everybody wants. So I, I need to be a little bit vague about what the budget is because truthfully we haven't we haven't figured it figured all that out right now, but there will definitely be a, fun, a fundraising capital campaign to help us raise the funds for it. And essentially, what I've said to everyone is that the, it will open approximately 18 months after we've raised the money. Because <laughs> you know, there's, there's a point where you say, okay, we've, we're ready to go and let's, let's uh, put all of the exhibit design and construction into, into full flow. And it, that takes time to, to work through and install and everything. So I said to someone recently that my job might be a little bit easier if we actually had no building because, because people would understand it takes time. Cause, I do have some people that are like, why is it take, taking so long? You have this building, why, why can't you just get something open really, really quickly? I feel we actually could get something open quickly, but I don't think it would be very good. And we want, this, we want to put down the foundations for something that is, is going to be around for the long term so that people would not just come the first time because Comic-Con was there, but they would come the second time and the third time and, 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 and many times. And, and um, to do something that's got depth and strength um, it does take some takes take some thought and and um, we're going to take the time to do that well you need to emphasize that 18 months after you raise the funds because I think that'll incentivize people to like let's get them the money fast <laughs> so we can see this sooner yeah you know I, sh I should should say that I'm, I'm still getting my first impressions not just of the project but of San Diego I, I'm moving here from Dallas and until October 16th when I started this job I you know, I'd probably spent three days in San Diego my whole life. I, I feel I'm, I'm learning a lot about how the city sees Comic-Con and, and I felt really welcome. There's, there's a genuine warmth to me personally, but I, more importantly to the project to the project that I'm working on. I, I, I feel there's a sort of a, even people that don't go to Comic-Con seem to generally have a favorable feeling about it. And I felt, I, I maybe had a little concern coming into the job that would we fit in in Balboa Park because I'd, I'd, I'd visited the park and you know the, the museum as you know the, there's, there's a lot of museums already there there's a certain kind of cultural feeling about the place and I, I, I wondered if Comic Con would fit in or, or would be welcomed and I mean that concern has completely evaporated because I, I've been I felt very very warmly welcomed and the more I get to know the park and the more time I spend them there the more I realize that actually Comic-Con fits in really well and it's, it's been fun actually learning the history of Balboa Park I, I learned recently that in 1915 the very first exposition they had like this huge thing called War of the Worlds which was a, a science fiction extravaganza where Martians attacked uh, New York City and they had sound and lights and explosions and things like that and it's like wow this, this is over a hundred years ago in Balboa Park they were doing 
you know, things that feel kind of like Comic-Con like. <laughs> and they had a whole thing now that was how the movies are made in Hollywood. And, you know, and so, the, so that which is old is, is sometimes new again. And, and I, I feel like, as I said, the, 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 the welcome I've had from, from the community around the park has been actually unusually warm. And I really appreciate that. And as somebody who has worked in museums for a long time, what do you see as the importance of having a museum or a center that's dedicated to pop culture? I think the world is still waking up to pop culture, if that makes sense. The way that the world has viewed culture, as I said earlier, has I think has been kind of top-down. That there is a, fundamentally, culture is something that um, the educated decide what's important and and sort of present that to the world and I think pop culture in its name and in its very essence is coming from a different place it's coming from almost a more democratic way of understanding understanding art and culture that, that essentially the people decide what they like and and I've always loved that and and I and I think the I think there's almost a little movement going on right now, and it might it might be connected to the millennial generation, which is such a strong part of what, what Comic Con is. There's almost a little movement of 21st century museums that are emerging, and I think we're going to be one of them. The the Meow Wolf thing in Santa Fe is another one. Even the Museum of Ice Cream that 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 has been um, up here on the West Coast. The they are representing a way of presenting art and culture that, that is coming from, from the people. I think there will be more art popular culture museums opening all around the country and all around the world. We've got, right now we've got Paul Allen's museum up in Seattle, we've got George Lucas's museum that's going to open in LA, we've got Comic-Con, we've got things like Meow Wolf, um, and, and I think we're, we're on the forefront of, there will be more of these, because there's just, there's just more interest in, in the subject, and, and and to some degree, I think we are validating what it is, validating that this interest is worthy of a permanent facility, and it's a way to give people an, you know, a, a sort of a, a year-round expression of their interest. Right now, you can go to Comic-Con or WonderCon or, or similar events, and you know, but can you go somewhere on a on a on a Wednesday afternoon in you know in December or whatever? You can't, and and I think it's, it's just part of a natural evolution. Now you mentioned you hadn't really been to San Diego much. Does that mean you have yet to attend a Comic Con? No, I did actually come this past this past July. It was actually part of the interview process for the job, and and I'm awfully glad that I did attend because I'm not sure I could wrap my head around it if I if I hadn't. I'd been to a couple of sort of smaller pop culture type events on the east coast previously but uh, I mean Comic Con is just just out of this world but it, it it's, it's kind of familiar to me in the sense that I worked in Oshkosh Wisconsin for 11 years with an organization called EAA and they run the world's largest air show so every year it's, it's very Comic Con like this event takes over an entire town Three quarters of a million people come. Ten thousand airplanes fly in, and it's this this huge, you know, explosion of passion. So, when I came to Comic Con, if it, it, although I'd never been to the event before, the feeling of it felt extremely familiar to me because it, it was it was 
exactly the same thing. Just sort of like a happiness on everyone's face that they're here, they're they're at this amazing event and uh, just immersing themselves in what they love. Before we started the interview, you mentioned that at one point you were gathering oral histories for some project you had been working on. Is something like that uh, possibly going to be included in terms of, I mean, one of the things Comic-Con has done is it brings these comic artists who are now getting considerably older and, you know, they seem like this wealth of information and resource and is there a possibility that there'd be some way for the museum to tap into that in terms of recording things from them and and keeping them on some sort of permanent record? Yeah, oral history has been a a big part of my professional life the very first job I had was recording veterans of World War One that's kind of interesting because every single one of those is you know passed away years ago and and I feel really proud that 25 years ago I was it was able to capture their memories you know for, for, for forever and I've done that in lots of different places that I've worked since then and, and I, I, I do feel drawn to doing some kind of oral history program with Comic Con because it's fundamentally about recording the history of people and the people that have participated in the event over the years. Generally I don't think we're going to be a big collecting organization. As I mentioned earlier, I've already got <laughs> an overwhelming amount of content and it doesn't make a lot of sense for us to to go and build a a big collection there are many awesome collections out there that we can partner with you know i think we're we're probably better off using that square footage to display things and to than to than to store them but oral history is something that i think it might be worth collecting for us because I, i guess there's a little bit of it going on but um, there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of people's memories have not been captured yet. So at this point in time, uh, what are your feelings right now about where you're at and what you're most looking forward to? I most look forward to getting it open. <laughs> because if, I, I, I have learned the hard way in my professional life that museums or visitor attractions can be kind of, they're kind of shaky business models. They're a little bit like restaurants. Nine out of 10 museums are kind of fundamentally uh, failing on some level. And I am absolutely driven on this project to uh, make us one of the one in 10 that that is, you know, is viable as a a business entity. And I've, I've got plenty of scars on my back, you know, that made me very afraid walking into this job you know that just to to make sure that we put the the basics in place the more i've worked on this project the more convinced i've become that there is a very strong operating model at the heart of this for comic con so that's not keeping me awake at night at all whereas in some previous jobs it, it has what's keeping me awake at night is just getting it open on a reasonable time frame because as you even the way you frame some of the questions today people they almost they want it to be open now and and so that can't happen fast enough. It, it, so what do, what do I look forward to, honestly, is raising the money because if there's one thing that's hard to accelerate, it's, it's um, non-profit fundraising. I've done a lot of it in my life and it's, it's always based on relationships and making your case and Comic-Con's never really done that before. So we've got, we've got a lot of fundamentals to put in place and any success that I've ever had in fundraising is rooted in great relationships and, 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 and a passion and a love that people have for something and that is just abundant at Comic-Con so I know we can do it.
Well, it's been a lot of fun talking to you, and I hope that we'll be able to check in along this uh, journey to find out when things are happening. Yeah, I uh, look forward to the journey, and I think at, at various points along the way, you know, we will have things to say, and, and in general, I am really intrigued by the idea of, of being of having quite an open process of how we conceptualize the museum. You might be familiar with something called Lego Ideas. It's Lego basically go to their fan base and say, hey, suggest ideas for kits that we could make. And they so people submit ideas and then they have this whole voting process whereby the fans of Lego decide what products the company ends up making and I think it's five times a year they actually make a kit that came from the public and I am really interested in bringing that kind of idea to, to our work so that we have a methodology where our fans can can suggest ideas and they and our fans can upvote or downvote ideas and, and we can implement them in the museum that that's um, that's something that over the course of the next year or two, I think you'll see us doing that kind of thing. And if people want to follow this progress, is there going to be some place like on the Comic-Con website or are you going to be running a blog or something? Is there some place where people can kind of check in and see if those kind of things are being asked of them or where they can see what progress is like? Yes, I have an email list that people can sign up to. <laughs> it is. You can tell us. <laughs> um, I actually don't have a, you know, because we haven't named it yet, I don't have a website and a URL, and, and although uh, we have reserved lots of names <laughs> in case anyone's thinking they might want to go and try and grab them. All the ones that we might use, we, I think we've already got. <laughs> but I, 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 if you go to... Um, comic-con.org forward slash opt in that will take you to a page where you can join a, a mailing list I've got a couple of thousand people already on it that that's a way just to keep informed about you know the different twists and turns in the project all right and are you looking forward to any panels or anything today here at WonderCon I am looking forward to the Guardians of the Galaxy pinball machine, which I believe is in is in the is out there in the hall somewhere to be played. <laughs> I'm enjoying I'm enjoying the cosplay immense immensely. In terms of the panels, I'm I really am interested in Ready Player One, which is at 12:30 today. Everything I'm reading about that movie is um, really in, in, interesting to me. We didn't talk about it, but I'm very interested in what kind of virtual reality and augmented reality experiences we can build into our work in Balboa Park. And it seems like that that movie's um, totally in that kind of in that mindset. So I'm hoping maybe to get some inside information before the movie's released today. Well, and you can also walk down to downtown Disney and they have The Void, which is a little Star Wars oh, virtual man. reality. I went to it yesterday. Yeah. In fact, we should have talked about this. That absolutely blew my mind. There's been a few times in my life when I had an experience in a museum or a theme park or something, and I just thought, you know, I will never be the same again. And have you been in The Void? It, we had a little misadventure there last night, but we're going on Sunday. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't want to actually spoil it for you, but it was billed as you know i read something online that said this is the closest that anyone's ever created to a star trek holodeck you know where you walk into this virtual world and you interact with it and and i was kind of skeptical you know because that 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 sounded a bit like hype but 
I will say that it it was really mind-blowingly good. It was I I, I totally suspended my disbelief, and I was in I was in a Star Wars movie. I thought they they do a fantastic job of of leading you on that journey, and it's it's that's where you know my creative juices really start flowing when you see technologies like that and you you know you know you have a chance of doing things like that all right well i'm excited to see what comes of all this and look forward to talking to you again thank you beth i enjoyed the conversation that was adam smith executive director of the new comic con center for the popular arts that will hopefully open in the next couple years and now for a little treat from WonderCon. It's the Cartoon Voices panel that Mark Evanier hosts every year at both WonderCon and Comic-Con. This year, the panel at WonderCon featured five masters of voice acting. Neil Ross of Kung Fu Panda, Legends of Awesomeness, and Transformers. Eliza Jane Schneider of Final Fantasy and Skylanders. Wally Wingert of Batman, Arkham Asylum, and The Garfield Show. Julie Nathanson of Marvel Avengers, Suicide Squad Hell to Pay, and Far Cry 5, and Townsend Coleman of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and The Tick. This is the part of the panel where the actors are given a script they've never seen before and are asked to do a cold reading with some hilarious results. Now, usually they'd have plenty of time to study their scripts. We're not going to give them that. Usually we'd ask them to adhere to the exact lines that are written. We're not going to require them to do that. Uh, anything. This is a very boring script by intentionally. Anything funny that comes out of this was added by these people. So if you are anywhere near ready, or even if you're not, we will start with line number one, Mr. Ross. Once upon a time, there was a house with the most beautiful garden anyone had ever seen. Peasants would gather around to admire it, and especially to ask about one special plant. Whoa, what is that beautiful flower that grows there? <laughs> it's called a rampion, and it grows nowhere else for thousands of miles around. All right, well then I gotta get some. It looks absolutely delicioso. <laughs> you don't want to go in there. That's the garden of Dame Gothel. Rhymes with brothel. <laughs> oh wait, there's 18-year-old and young girls around. She's a wicked witch. You cast a spell on anyone who dare touch her rampion, if you know what I mean. <laughs> How dare you talk about my rampion that way? Go away, I know what you want, but you can't have it. Keep your hands off my <coughs> rampion, or else. Everyone stay far away from her garden. Everyone except a woman will live nearby with her husband. Would you believe each day she would look lovingly at the garden? Henry, I have an overwhelming desire for a salad made from that plant. But there's an evil witch. And shouldn't we focus on having that child we wanted for so long? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Keep your pants on, honey. I know that if I do not eat rampion, I will surely die. Pain sigh. <sighs> Very well, my dear. If you want it, you will have it. Sir Henry climbed the wall and Dame Bothell's garden and began picking rampion. And that was when the witch appeared. <laughs> you! How dare you come into my garden and steal my rampion? 
I will turn you into a disgusting creature. The lowest form of life. A Trumpster. Uh, uh, if you like, you know, please forgive me and stuff. <laughs> My wife craves Rampion so badly. Uh, she's like gonna die and stuff if she doesn't have something to eat, so like, could you know, like, stop sucking and do it? <laughs> well, if you're willing to tell me the truth, I will let you take as much Rampion as you want on one condition. You must give me the child which your wife will bring into the world. I shall care for it like its natural mother. I-I-I-I can't, 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 can't do that. I'm sorry. It's very didactic and pedantic. I'm sorry. Then prepare to become a warthog. Or worse. No! No! <laughs> I beg you not to do that, okay? I promise! The child will be yours. <laughs> the deal was made and the wife got her rampion. Months later, the couple finally did have a beautiful child on a Saturday night! <laughs> hey, I the daughter. <laughs> Henry, my love. That was when the witch appeared. There's daughter. Are you kidding me? <laughs> she is mine, and I shall name her Rapunzel. He will laugh. <laughs> uh, is that a monkey? <laughs> <laughs> evil monkey. I liked it a lot. And with that, the child took the. Hey, wait a minute. And with that, the witch took the child and departed. <laughs> Followed, Rapunzel grew into a beautiful young woman. All day she would sing as she brushed her long golden hair. Yes, so beautiful she was. <laughs> she would lose her tame gothel was. Yes. <laughs> Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hairs. 
so I may climb the golden stair. <laughs> yes, mother! Oh, boy! Let me unfasten my braided tresses so that you may climb my hair, whatever you're into. Here they come! Oh. <clears throat> Hairball. You look so safe and lovely out there. Oh my god, thank you so much, Mother. <laughs> but like, I don't know, like, I'm still really, like, thinking, like, maybe to get to meet, like, some other girls. Or, like, some boys. <laughs> Silence! I forbid it. But you would not be lonely. I shall visit you at least once a week. <laughs> Dreaming, 
scheming, fantasizing. Thing. Ugh, there's nothing to see. 
panel from WonderCon this past Saturday. There'll be another Cartoon Voices panel coming up in July at Comic-Con. 
And now for the Easter egg I promised. Here's my interview with actor Jeff Goldblum, the fabulous star of Buckaroo Banzai, Jurassic Park, Earth Girls Are Easy, and so much more. He can currently be heard voicing the character of Duke in Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs. The Japanese archipelago, 20 years in the future. Canine saturation has reached epidemic proportions. An outbreak of dog flu rips through the city of Megasaki. Mayor Kobayashi issues emergency orders, calling for a hasty quarantine. Trash Island becomes an exiled colony. The Isle of Dogs. I began my interview by asking him how he prepared to voice a dog. Well, that's a good question. Well, with Wes Anderson, you know, you just hitch up your pants and trust him completely and read the script because he's made a beautiful document in order to finally make this uh, stunning achievement. And then, well, you know, my particular character, Duke, he's a gossiper. And you sort of think about that a little bit. But you also think about the main thrust of him and his pack of uh, friends who are just deeply, heroically committed, sweetly committed to this love project of of, uh, 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 reuniting this young boy and his dog. They're just, they'll they'll give their lives for it, uh, just like real dogs. They're just devoted. They become just so, such great, uh, lovely, lovely friends, as we all know. I have a dog named Woody, and in preparation for this, I looked into his eyes deeply and spent more time with him, maybe, and thought about him a little more and loved him up a little bit more. How do you actually do voiceover work for something like this? Do you do the, do you read it first and then they animate to it, or do you get to see the image that you're actually voicing to? First you record it and then they animate to that, although they've got a couple of examples. And so early on he sent me the script, Wes Anderson, and he showed me a couple of pictures of things that were going to inspire this whole style and look of things, some Japanese drawings, and then I think some early you know, sculptings of some puppets. But then you do the voice in a thing like this, and then they spend three years you know, doing gorgeous work where they fill in your performance and move these puppets around and uh, you can see every because how good they are it seems like all your thinking and feeling is captured and depicted in 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 their eyes and what they do somehow you know the animation in this is so enchanting i have to I tell know. you just That's, i think so too i know and did you have any influence or did your performance have any influence on how Duke ended up looking? I don't know about that. I haven't asked about that specifically. They will generously say, these Wes and the artisans and artists who did this, that, oh, they were inspired by the voices and the voices gave them something. But um, and maybe, maybe they did. And you can see, yes, that with each little breath, you know, they're following your breath and breathing and thinking and and what seems to be if you take a pause they sort of fill in and depict what you must be thinking and and doing during that pause in a kind of a beautiful way so they are working with the voice in a very talented way but i'm sure they had ideas about the kind of breed of dog and what they looked like and i don't know maybe they evolved i don't i haven't heard anybody talk about it maybe they evolved you know, as they were doing it from your 
from the vocal performance, but I'll bet they had very clear ideas about how they wanted everybody to look and had already gotten drawings and all that stuff. So what are the challenges for an actor when you're doing this kind of voiceover or voicing a character as opposed to, you know, physically acting it out? Well, you know, you only have a limited, you can't make all your faces, you know, that you usually try to do and put on your nice clothes and say, hey, how about these jeans, you know, you just go, of course, with this and you trust Wes Anderson to make it look great. So, but you don't have that to do, you got to do it all with your voice. But it's not so hard. Actually, I was in a recording studio some now, I don't know, a year ago, and Wes was on the phone from... I think he was in New York, where he'd invited me to record with the other, with Bill Murray and uh, Bob Alaban and uh, Ed Norton and Brian Cranston, because we're a pack of dogs, but I couldn't do it, so I had to do it all by myself. So I just had to listen to his direction, kind of do, I'd been studying the script and, and try to do my lines like... I thought they might be done, and then he had ideas. Some, you know, he wants something subtle and naturalistic, and he had great ideas that made me laugh, and we worked on it for a while and, until he was uh, satisfied. But it's pretty easy because, you know, I did that for a couple, three hours, and then they went off and worked for three years, really, on uh, the rest of the performance. So I, I had it comparatively easy. What kind of a director is he to work with? Is he someone who sticks very firmly to the script, or does he allow you to have some play with what that dialogue he's written is? That's a very interesting question. He is a great combination of somebody very meticulous, like I think the Coen brothers are, in relation to dialogue, and Aaron Sorkin, and if you do a play, you know, if you do a David Mamet play, which I've done different plays, you know, you got to render the words verbatim and try to make it sound like you're making them up. And he is, is, is in my experience, in these few movies I've done, something like that. And I remember on Grand Budapest Hotel, I had a big speech, and I'd been working on it conscientiously. And after the first or second take, he said, you know, you're changing this, and this was literally, so you're changing this and to a the, or maybe it was a the to an and. And he said, uh, I said, I know, but I'm not just doing that carelessly. I'm, I, here's why I think it feels right to me. And he said, uh-huh, I understand what you're talking about. Can you please do it the other way and just stick to it? I said, okay, okie dokie. But having said that, within this sort of bullseye that he has sort of beautifully struck already, it feels collaborative and free, and you do many takes oftentimes. And within this little sort of idea that he's got, which is really a big idea, you get to play. And it feels, he feels like a very actorly, great actor's director. And he gives you ideas how to sort of nuance it. And, and he says, please do it how you like it. And it, it's like that. It's a very fun kind of process. Well, you've also worked with another very independent director who has a very distinct voice, too, uh, Hal Hartley. You did Faye Grimm. Oh, that's very interesting that you should bring that up. That's right. I loved Hal Hartley. But by the time I worked with him, he was in Berlin, living in Berlin. And Parker Posey was in that movie, of course, and Saffron Burroughs. Yes, he's got an individual unique voice, doesn't he? Yes, he does. I love his stuff, too. Uh, yeah, I know. I'm lucky. I mean, I'm getting a chance to work with Taika Waititi recently. He's, there's nobody like him. And he, speaking of which, is very uh, improvisational, does a lot of, we did a lot of improvisation in Thor. Let's stop there. You know what? I woke up this morning thinking about a public execution. I did. I really did. But for now, I'll, I'll settle for this you know, sweet little, uh, you know, who's going to get him first? So, uh, well, you're on the clock. 
This means go. Did you not get that? That's the universal sign. Was I not clear? Oh, heaven's sakes. What did you make of that? And then I worked on that uh, Jurassic World movie with uh, Colin Trevorrow, who wrote and directed the last one, who directed that Jeep commercial that I did where I reprised my Dr. Ian Malcolm character that they showed during the Super Bowl. How do you like it now, my friend? Would you like to take it for a test drive? I just did. And J.A. Bayona was the director of this next one, and, um, and that was a lot of fun. And then I did this movie with Jodie Foster called Hotel Artemis that's going to be out this summer, where I played a kind of a bad guy. And then I just finished this movie with Rick Alverson called The Mountain. And um, you know who's in that with me is Ty Sheridan and Udo Kier and Denis Laval, you may know. I think that's going to be an interesting movie. And then I've got this record that I'm going to make. Decker Records is making this record. I play jazz piano with a jazz group, and we're going to do a uh, record at the Capitol Records building live May 18th and 19th, uh, pretty soon. Well, you always have fascinating work. One of my favorite films, since you brought up a few others, I'm going to say that Buckaroo Banzai is one of my all-time favorites. Thank you very much. I, I, I like that movie, too. Buckaroo, how's the patient? Oh, fine. He's doing fine. Thanks to you. But more importantly, congratulations. You. you drove through a mountain. I did. You drove right through a mountain the other day. You did it right after you left me at the operation. You hadn't even said anything about it. Didn't even uh, mention S- you Sydney, were going to do Sydney, it. Sydney, these are my friends. This is my colleague, Dr. Sidney Zweibel, old medical friend from Columbia PNS. Howdy. Howdy there. Listen, Sydney, I'm glad you could make it because it looks like we may need an extra hand sooner than I thought. Aha, uh-huh, I see an extra hand. Yeah, that's what I was wondering about. I mean, I got your message about rendezvousing at this address. Barely had time to pack my saddlebags. Then I came here and I, I can see that. I like it too. Ellen Barkin and Peter Weller, of course. Clancy Brown. Yeah, that's a good movie. One of the greatest tragedies is the sequel never came out. I know. They had it up their sleeves. I think they had a lot in mind, Mr. Richter and Earl MacRouch, but uh, I don't think enough people came that, that warranted making more. Well, I gave it a positive review when I was writing back then. I loved that movie. Thank you. I do, too. <laughs> yeah. I like that, too. And I think Wes uh, admired it. And uh, remember in Life Aquatic, the end scene where we're all kind of join each other for this parade of end credits was a little bit like uh, the end of Bucker Banzai. In playing Duke, what, did, what appealed to you most about his character? Well, besides his quirky way of always having some gossip to tell and to kind of, I think, maybe make himself feel good and a contributing part of the the, the the gang. I think he's a kind of a like-minded everybody. They're all sort of in working on the same page in terms of their sweetness and you know willingness to you know risk their lives to uh, for this uh, boy. They love this boy who loves his dog, and they want to reunite them. and And uh, I love that spine of the character. You know, I think they're deeply loving and sweet, uh, you know, characters. We get the idea. You're looking for your lost dog spots. Does anybody know him? No. no. I've lost all I have to say that after the film ended, I felt like I needed to hug a dog. They should have, like, dog rescue people yeah. out. At <laughs> well, you're right. There's, there are going to be some screenings where you can bring your dog and Aww. people will be watching it together. And then on the Today Show, it was part of this publicity a little um, uh, tour, I uh, went on with the Best Friends Animal 
society, and we had a couple of dogs that uh, we put, people could adopt, call and adopt, and they told me some things that I didn't even know, which is that 4,100 roughly cats and dogs get killed every day just because there's no room at the shelter and they got to kill them. And Best Friend's goal is to, by 2025, have no more kills of that kind. Uh, so they do good work. And, yeah, I know the, the movie is very we love dogs, you know, kind of thing. And you're, you do want to love your dog, I know. They're beautiful creatures. Well, and the animated creatures are so appealing that you just, like, want to reach out and give them a hug. I know. I know. I feel the same way. All those, all those, every dog, I mean, Leif Schreiber's dog and Brian Cranston's dog, so appealing, and uh, Scarlett Johansson. Uh, so beautiful and uh, appealing. I know. I like those dogs. How about Tilda Swinton's dog? Gorgeous little oracle pug and uh, F. Murray Abraham's dog. <laughs> They're great. Do you think you could have done this if you'd been asked to voice a cat? Oh, yes, I think so. There's my purr. I could have been a cat. I, uh, cats are very beautiful, too. Yeah, cats are very sensual, of course, and self-possessed, I guess is the cliche, but I'm sure there are many different kind of cat psyches. Oh, yeah, I could play a cat. Sometimes I don't like talking animals so much. I like Mr. Ed, but um, I like the Wes Anderson version of animals where where they're kind of like smart, interesting people with <laughs> recognizably people, you know, personalities. <laughs> Nobody's giving up around here, and don't you forget it, ever. You're Rex. You're King. You're Duke. You're Boss. I'm Chief. We're a pack of scary, indestructible alpha dogs. <laughs> well, what's fun about the film, too, is that the dogs are framed and shot just the way he frames and shoots his live actors, and they have, like, the looks and the the mannerisms that you you have seen like in his past movies for humans yeah, i know i know he's a genius i like that I, have you seen that uh, little behind the scenes interview w- w- interviews with the actors supposedly but it's us improvising this time fully improvising just you know something about how we felt about playing our characters and then they animated it with the same stop motion with the, our characters and my character duke talks about oh it's, it's i like i like my name like duke ellington and i sing a little duke ellington song and they animated that all have you seen that no i have not i'm gonna oh. have to look it up oh you gotta look that up and i love his name duke it reminds me of, uh, would you know who I'm talking about if I said, Would you know who I was talking about? Of course, Duke Ellington. That's right, Duke Ellington. And they have a version of it for if you go to the theaters in virtual reality. So you can put on those glasses and be, and be right next to that the character. Uh, I just saw it today. It's just kind of spectacular. And have you gotten to see the finished film yet? I've seen it three times now. And it was, it's so rich, and there's so much to take in. It wasn't until the third time that I thought where I, we saw it in Austin, South by Southwest, with the audience that was very receptive and wildly appreciative and laughed out loud lots. And oh, it was, you know, audibly uh, moved and, and uh, um, where I felt like I got a lot out of it, even more out of it, and started to fall even more in love with it. Yeah, I want to see it again, too. 
Did anything surprise you when you saw the whole thing finally put together? Oh, my gosh, it's all shockingly surprising how gorgeous it is and how every, you know, as you follow my, you know, your own character that you voiced, it's, you know, I didn't know it was going to be doing all sorts of things that it does. And then everything that's in the movie, I mean, I read the script a couple of times, but I don't think I remembered everything that was described. And I'm sure there was stuff in there that that wasn't described. Very surprising. Yeah. And I was surprised how funny it was and how moved I was and how culturally relevant it is now, what with uh, anti-fear mongering mm, as it is and anti-bigotry and pro-student you know, uprising and, uh, you know, and, and how it uh, indicts, you know, uh, corrupt uh, political factions who will uh, deny science, you know, for the purposes of their own uh, nefarious uh, profit-making of one kind or another. Uh, yeah, and then how moving it was, just the story about the boy and his dog and how lovely that was and how it was about dogs, not only how we love them, but how they love us and how they're, you know, rightfully our, our best friends. Well, I want to thank you very much for your time. I oh, thank you so much. I appreciate talking to you, and especially today, because my car was stolen out of my driveway, and I had this to look forward to. You've got to be kidding. This is a <laughs> momentously... <laughs> Horrific day. I'm so sorry. Well, I hope you get it back. And I hope so. But talking to you made the day brighter. So you are so sweet. Well, thanks. Good luck on everything. Thank you, and good luck with the film. Thank you very much. That was actor Jeff Goldblum brightening my day. The stolen car was recovered, and more importantly, it still had my Totoro and Matrix umbrellas in the trunk along with a gorilla grabber, so it all turned out okay. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes. Your recommendation is the best way for Cinema Junkie to build a bigger audience. You can also provide financial support to keep the podcast going by donating online at kpbs.org slash feedthejunkie. It's also tax deductible. Thanks for listening, and remember to check out the archives on iTunes or at kpbs.org slash junkiepodcast. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.
KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.